Hey, welcome to the Afikr Podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. On today's episode, we feature a conversation with Amir Al-Safar and Arun Ramamurti, two musicians who are behind Raga Maqam, a musical ensemble based out of Brooklyn, New York. This conversation is a lot of fun. We actually get to hear both of these gentlemen play a little bit. And hope you enjoy it. It was recorded on December 10th, 2020. Welcome, everyone. My name is Mikey Mahenna. Um, I'm the executive director of Afikra, and I'm very happy that you're joining us for this episode of Afikra Conversations. I'm really excited to be joined by our two special guests today, um, Amir, uh, who is an expert trumpeter with a classical background. He's created techniques to play microtones and ornaments, thematic to Arab music that are not typically heard on the trumpet. Um, Arun, who is a versatile violinist, composer, and educator based in Brooklyn, he has carved a niche for himself as a multifac- multifaceted artist. Both of them are uh, enormously accomplished musicians in their own right, but are here together today as a part of uh, Raga Makam, which was born out of, collab- out of a collaboration between the Indian Center Foundation um, and Brooklyn Raga Massive and the Lincoln Center of the, for the Performing Arts. Raga Makam is an exploration of the shared threads of Iraqi Makam and the Indian Raga. Arun, Amir, thank you so much for joining our Victor Conversations. Thank you. Thank it's a pleasure you. to be here. It's so nice to be here. So let's um, kind of start as we start most of these conversations uh, with sort of a biographical question. Um, Amir, let's start with you. When did you first find yourself into, uh, when did you first start playing trumpet? Um, and when did you start exploring this idea of playing microtones and sort of uh, using a Western instrument like the trumpet in sort of, um, uh, in a scale that, that needs sort of quarter tones and things like that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um... Especially the, the the second part of it. My my beginning as a you know my early days as a trumpet player were basically through elementary school. We had a choose your instrument day, and um, for whatever reason, the I was actually intent on playing the saxophone, and I couldn't get a sound out of the saxophone, and I was confused by how many buttons there were. And then the band director gave me a trumpet, and a sound came out. And he said, well, okay, that's your instrument. I said, I don't want to play trumpet. He said, you're going to play trumpet. And only had three valves, so it seemed easier. Um, And I I spent about four or five years after that taking lessons and not being particularly motivated um, by the trumpet because of the way, I think because of the way it was being taught in the school system, it wasn't, you know, there wasn't much to be very excited about. Where Um, was this? This was, sorry, I was growing up in a suburb of Chicago called... um, River Forest, so okay. just just west of the city, um, and this this part of the you know we were very cl- connected with the urban life in Chicago and concerts and stuff. But um, but this was sort of an, an average elementary school experience, um, except that I did stick with the trumpet. And around the age of fourteen, I heard Miles Davis for the first time. It was Kind of Blue, which is an album that has motivated many many people. Uh, to, to play jazz and um, but that when I heard that record um, I had been playing guitar at the time and I was much more into you know Jimi Hendrix and blues and, and rock of the 60s and 70s um, but when I heard kind of blue it just um, opened my mind and and I started 
just because I became obsessed over the trumpet as a 14 year old and and wanted to learn everything that Miles had ever played and everything that Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and all the the, the jazz greats. Um, and that was basically my next, the next 10 years of my life, um, also playing classical trumpet in, in orchestras in Chicago. And I got a degree in classical trumpet from DePaul University um, in Chicago. And all that time I'd been hearing hints of Arabic music, um, mostly through my sister who had gone to Iraq um, as a teenager. So we, we just to give a little bit of a biographical, my father's Iraqi, my mother's American, and we were born in the U.S. and raised, you know, we hadn't really visited Iraq, um, mostly because of the wars and political turmoil there um, throughout the 80s and 90s. But my sister did manage to go once, and she became very inspired and started a band called Salam that's still active after 30-something years, wow. um, playing Arabic music. And she's part of the Raga Maqam project, uh, playing the Joza and violin, and she and I still play together all the time. Um, but she kept playing me Arabic music. I said, this is great, but there's quarter tones and, you know, the trumpet's just not not equipped to play quarter tones. And it's, you know, kind of bummed me out. And then every once in a while, I'd find some weird idiosyncratic note and, and play it for my sister. But hey, it sounds like a quarter tone. She's like, yeah, it's not really it. Um, because it's not just not out of tune to what I, you know, the Western t- temperament. Um, but then one day she played me a recording uh, of this instrument and I listened to it about 10, ten times um, not knowing what it was, but it was a beautiful wind instrument. And then, you know, she kept playing. She said, you don't know what instrument? I said, I don't know, it's a, some kind of bamboo flute, or is it a voice or a violin? It was, I was really perplexed. And she said, it's a trumpet. And I said, no, no, no. And then I had to listen to it another 50 times before I could convince myself that a trumpet, you know, I was playing in symphony orchestras and playing in jazz, big bands, and, you know, this sound was so smooth and silky and just mellow and gorgeous and those quarter tones mm-hmm. and ornaments and slides and glissando and I said okay there's something else going on here and then that basically set me on a trajectory for the next I don't know 15 years of my life I found the trumpet player he was named Samuel Babli I lived in in Egypt um, and I met him I uh, had kind of a lesson with him and then very sadly he died in a, in a car accident about a year later Oh my God. Um, so I never really had a chance. I planned on going back and really, like, you know, becoming his apprentice, and it never happened. Um, so I just have recordings of him, and then, yeah. So that's that's the the long short answer. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Well, before we come back to that, so Arun, I'm curious uh, to hear your story, how you came into, um, you know both uh, how you became a, a violinist I'm, violinists uh, famously start very early in life but when did you start uh composing um well composing is, is you know i wouldn't say that that is my my first order of business but as far as violin um i've been playing since i was about eight um so maybe relatively late <laughs> if you will but I, I uh, you know, both my parents are from South India, and my mother is a Carnatic, which is a South Indian classical vocalist. So um, she had training she learned from her mother. Uh, so I started singing when I was, you know, five or six, learning kind of the fundamentals of Carnatic music. And then um, my grandmother also played violin as like a hobby, you know, not professionally or anything, but... Um, so, you know, she, I'm the youngest of her nine grandchildren. 
and um, she basically handed the violin to every one of her grandchildren, and it didn't take with anybody. So I think by the time she got to me, she was like, you will learn violin. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I started with Western classical music, and um, it was it was wonderful. I was very fortunate to have great teachers throughout my life. So my, my Western classical teacher was amazing, and then by the age of 10, I started learning Carnatic music with a man named Anantakrishnan. And, you know, here's like a, a really incredible violinist from India who moved to New Jersey. He actually lived in Chicago um, from when he came to from India and then moved to New Jersey right around the time, uh, the same year, I believe, or maybe the year before I started learning with him. And, um, you know, because I had learned Western music, I kind of had some of the technique already down. I could, you know, make good sounds and, and those kinds of things. So I was able to kind of progress relatively quickly with him. And uh, I studied with him throughout high school. And, you know, it was kind of like a thing where I played Western classical. I played in orchestras um, in the New Jersey State Youth Orchestra. And at the same time, I was kind of playing in these Carnatic music um, festivals. There's a big community in New Jersey. Um, there's a, a very large South Indian community in New Jersey. So um, there are annual kind of festivals that we would go to and all the kids would participate. And then they became competitions and yeah. I, I grew up in that kind of world and um, and yeah you know violin has been a part of Indian classical music and, and very specifically South Indian music for about 200 years and has really evolved over time so the techniques and um, the application of the instrument and the modification not really a modification but maybe the way it's played the way it's tuned um, slightly differs uh, but it is quite evolved and it's it's really a beautiful thing so um you know, I had the chance also when I was 17 to start learning with Mysore Nagaraj and Mysore Manjanath. And these are two brothers. They're, um, you know, maybe in their 50s now. Um, they're exceptional. They're incredible, virtuosic, yeah. improvising, creative, open musicians. Um, so they, they, they took me under their wing when I was about 17. And that was the big life changer for me. Um, you know, I never studied music in schools, uh, in like in high school, in college. I didn't get any degrees in music, but everything was kind of through gurus and teachers. And uh, after college and kind of studying economics in college, which I did nothing with, um, I ended up going to India and living in India for a year. And I lived in their house. They lived in a house together with their father, their, their guru. So it was like a pretty in intense house um, of music and, and incredible. We played so much. So that was, I think, what uh, sort of was like a trampoline for me as far as really throwing myself into Carnatic music for, for a lifetime. Okay, I have a very short question for you, Arun. What is that word you're saying? What type of music? Oh, Carnatic. Carnatic music. Carnatic. Yeah, that's okay. South Indian classical music. So interesting. I'd never heard that word before. Okay, so I, I'd like to, if it's okay with you, I'd like to play a little bit of this video that you and I were that we were talking about, just to give the people on the call uh, some sense of what what this or what this ensemble looks like and sounds like. So I'm going to play a little bit of this. Um, so let's play a little bit first. So this is uh, Ragamakam.
great. So I have a, I have a bunch of questions just from that. Uh, and, and I'll start with some really, really basic questions and then some broader. First of all, how is this notated? Are you, are you notating this and sort of handing out sheet music, Arun? Um, are you guys writing this together? Um, walk me through that sort of process. Um, Amir can handle this. He's, he's composing the music and he wrote out. Um, okay, perfect. So just so, Amir, walk me through that process. Sure. I mean, there are, there are different uh, ways of writing music that are used in, in Carnatic music, for instance, in, in Arabic music as well. Um, I'm relying on Western notation because that's the sort of thing that everybody can, can most people can, can read and understand. Um, but even Western notation is very limited when it comes to expressing the intonations, very subtle microtones. Those are the notes that are kind of in between the, the 12 notes of the Western system. And also the, um, the ornaments, also the, just the general sense of phrasing. So the, 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 the notation is just there as a reference to get everybody kind of in the same, in the same field. Um, but basically, um, the, the, the way that the creation happens is through the rehearsal process. And, and we had a couple of uh, rehearsals before this, and we've also had three years of working together in, in various situations and kind of allowing this freedom of improvisation, of, of sort of a, a musical dialogue, and whether someone's playing in a maqam or in a raga, we sort of, you know, listen to the what the other person's playing and respond. And it's a really beautiful process because, you know, like a, a melody that I'm used to hearing or playing in a, in a particular way from the maqam tradition, when like, let's say, Arun or Jay Gandhi, the, the Bansuri player, responds, suddenly they, they bring another flavor. They, they, they play something very similar, but they ornament it in, the, in a very different way that's, not what they've ever played before, but it's also not the way I've ever heard that phrase. So it, it uh, uh, the sound awakens in this beautiful way. And, and so when I finally committed to writing things and scoring things out, it was trying to capture all of what we've created collectively and then channel it into something that then can be a guide for, for our reference. So it's Especially when I'm this particular piece we played is is a mode that exists in the raga tradition and the maqam tradition. We'll talk a little bit more about the difference between these two, um, but suffice it to say, raga is from India, North and South India, Carnatic or Hindustani, um, and then maqam is the Iraq and the Middle East, the Arab world, and 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 beyond. Um, but certain certain pieces that we play are really just ragas that don't exist as maqams and vice versa. Um, so I'm really trying to tune in and listen and then make the composition as opposed to me just coming in with a bunch of scores and say, okay, you play this, you play that. I don't like working that way. Um, I, I prefer to let the sound emerge from the collective. Is the idea for the, the project so such that... Um to show a shared uh, sort of the center of the uh, the Venn diagram where these two very um, storied traditions and uh, very complex uh, traditions trying to say, hey, look, there's the, there's this overlap in in mode or overlap in sort of, um, uh, you know, composition structure over overlap in or, uh, instrumentation or is the idea to sort of say, let's actually mix these two things and and remix uh a and y and create uh, x and y and create z is that mm -hmm. what would you say is sort of the the goal of the project well i i 
I can speak to it. I'm sure everyone can as well. But I, sometimes it's it's a combination of both, and and maybe some other. There there are points of a real overlap in which you really feel like almost the same phrase or almost the same. Um, but then there are also points when there's certain like the the, the very ending of what you just played, the, uh, the the very beginning of what you played was was coming from a Karnatic raga that is so specific and nothing like it exists in I don't even think in Hindustani North Indian music and and even in in uh, Iraqi or Arabic tradition. Um, so it's kind of finding where that center is, but then also expanding to the widest boundaries possible where we really almost are speaking very different languages but still finding that there's a there's a a through line or maybe a basic core of unity that we're we're tapping into yeah um, yeah I yeah think, go ahead Arun. um i think amir hit it right on the head i think what i love about the process that um we've been going on and what amir is looking to do here is um, is taking these two traditions and, and but that both traditions can stand on their own and are presented on our herd um, within the music and um, and honored in that way. But then, you know, because there is sort of a common way of expression, um, there is a way of improvisation that I think is similar, um, being modal, having ornaments and having similar sort of Macombs and ragas that kind of have similar language but not exactly the same. It allows for interpretation, and that center point um, can look different every time. And the musicians that are involved are so creative and are coming from different places, are many of them born in the US and have those influences outside of traditional influences from the East. Um, all those things come together, I think, and that's where like this new kind of sound can emerge. And I think like over time, we're, we'll probably end up seeing more of this new sound kind of emerge as we kind of discover things about ourselves, discover, you know, for me personally, exploring Makam has opened my eyes and my sound up to the way I might look at a raga. Now I'm like, oh, you know, I know that the Makam kind of moves like this, if I incorporated that subtly, what would that do to the way I see this raga? Um, so, yeah. Can you just do a quick definition of terms? So, is is uh, I won't even I won't even uh, uh, offer my own sort of framework. If you were explaining it to an intelligent fifteen-year-old, what is a raga? Um, okay, so a raga is like a scale, but it is it's more than a scale. Um, so it like it has root notes. It's centered around a tonic note, which is like our center note. We call it sa, and it's based on a solfet system of sa ri ga ma pa da ni sa, like do re mi fa sa lo ti do. Sa ri ga ma pa da ni sa, sa ni da pa ma ga ri sa, which is like the major scale. Yeah. But the ornaments that we add to this and the movements, the grammar, is what makes it the raga. So those ornaments, now, 
what the way I just sang it with the ornaments is not written down. It's not. Um, it doesn't have to be exactly that way, but we learn the full gamut of the ornamentation on a raga like this, and they become our um, tools at our disposal to then improvise. So the raga is a framework now, and it becomes just something that we have, and we've internalized, and we can now express it how we wish. And then compositions then come after that. Um, and ragas, of course, have different... Um, intervals like I, the major scale was there but then you can have the third b minor or the second so the different intervals of each of those pitches then start to create new emotions and make you feel a little bit differently and then ornaments then would change based on that um so you know we learn each of these ragas very deeply for a long time before we even get to the point of improvisation um but improvisation is the goal from the beginning. Gotcha. Um, and before I switch to have Amir sort of walk me through um, a definition for the maqam, uh, are there specific forms as well, uh, sort of compositional forms that are tied specifically to the raga? Yes. So, um, comp- structure, you know, I mean, like, especially in, in South Indian classical music, composition is actually a very uh, important part of. Um, this of raga. So you'll have a composition that might last, you know, five minutes or so. And this might be a 200, Mm -hmm. 300, 400 year old composition. But then before that, you'll have something called an alap, which is an improvisation. It has no rhythm, um, no percussion, let's say. And it's just a free thing over a drone. And this drone plays in the background. And this is another distinction uh, between raga and makam. In raga, there's always... Um, a drone played by a tanpura, that instrument that drones kind of in the background, and it drones in the tonic, which is that root sa note, whatever we mm-hmm. choose. Um, so that free improvisation is one thing. Then within the song, you may take a lyric of the song and then improvise just on that one lyric. So melodically, you can do whatever you wish, but then you'd sing those lyrics or you play in the way that you're expressing those lyrics. Um, and over the same time cycle, which is happening, and you have to be... So you're holding on to time cycles, you're holding on to raga, like what notes you're using and the ornamentations and grammar, but then you're free to express yourself um, in any way you wish. And those are a few of the forms. There are other like improvisational forms within Carnatic and Hindustani music. So this mm-hmm. is South Indian classical being Carnatic. North Indian classical is called Hindustani, and they're coming from the same root, they have the same fundamentals, but their approach is slightly different. So in these improvisational and compositional forms, that's where you might see some differences between Hindustani and Carnatic music. Okay, perfect. Um, so Amir, same question except Makam. And I know, uh, again, uh, I want to say Makam means two very different things, right? Um, f- from what I understand, it's, uh, there's, it, there's like a mode... Uh, it can be used as to describe modes, but it can also be used to describe a genre, right? Yes. Um, actually, in, in Arabic, as, as you probably know, maqam has many other meanings too. And it, mm. it literally comes from the word qama, which is to stand. And then maqam is the place where you stand. So it's, you know, very basically, that's a, that's a sort of general definition. And then you say, okay, what does that have to do with music? Well, standing or 
we could say a station or we could even be more specific and say a pitch then the maqam has sort of this place this these notes that exist in a succession very similar to what arun was describing in the sense that you have these usually seven notes um almost always seven um, unlike the raga where you can have five or six or four or different numbers of notes um but that sort of exist in 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 relation to one another so there's a progression from from one pitch to the next and um as arun was was speaking and singing i decided maybe it would be good to show you on the santur how this first definition this sort of scale or mode definition works because it's you can actually visualize it and and then i can show you how the modes change so i'm going to tip this computer yeah, down yeah, here's a santur um it's not a great angle of it uh, but i mean it's great to see it up close but you're not seeing the the what the instrument looks like so so i'm this is the bottom note pardon the intonation but we'll just i just pulled it out of the case now so so that that is a c rust scale so so as opposed to the major which has a you know would be a little bit higher on this this degree is a quarter tone so it's it's between if this is do or let's say in abc this is c d that note is an e it's not e natural and it's not e flat it's an e half flat so and then this is f G, A, B half flat, and C. So, so that's a mode called rust. Now, if I take the same note, I instead of using B, if I this is my tonic or my home note. So instead of C, it's now D. We have a whole different mode with a very different feeling and a different vocabulary. Another sonic world and similarly I can go up to E and have another mode but around the point when you get to the E E half flat rather things start to get funky um, the notes start to move around because this is a half flat which is acoustically speaking is a little bit unstable it's not as centered as the the C and the D or the uh, like the more natural notes when you get these half flats they start to evoke other pitches so in in essence what happens is is instead of having the same like the same grouping of notes um, or
so it's the the notes are are we call them quarter tones, but they're actually even more malleable. And and there's this small intonations. You start raising this note and lowering that one a little bit, and then boom, you're in another mode. And similar to raga, every every mode is not just like okay, here's a nice scale. It's it's actually because you stay in it for a long time, you kind of soak in these modes. You're like steeped in them, and there's they create a, a like a I mean, mode and mood are very closely related in English, and I think that's a good um, analogy because there's sort of it's like the room becomes filled with these standing waves, and it's actually literally what's happening acoustically, and when that happens. It it creates you know imagine it's like changing the color of the of the lighting or changing the because now the, there's a certain there's certain ratios there are mathematical ratios within the 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 sounds that are creating like literally creating shapes in the room and when you sit in those for a while you feel there's this joyful mode there's a very mournful one and then of course the way the person plays within it is it brings out different emotions and it gets very personalized um and you so mentioned like you know that there's like different colors for each one and raga actually means the translation is like that which colors the mind so mm. like it's about color and each raga brings a different color or emotion and you know what amir is saying is 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 amazing about this like modulation how you know you go to the second degree or the second note in that first mode and you get a completely different um kind of mode and feeling. And in Raga, that idea does exist, but it's very, it's not as commonly done and it's um, not a centerpiece. Whereas in Makam, you know, they're built around these movements where it kind of changes and goes to something else. And those are just these magical moments. Like, and that's something I think we've been exploring is like, well, how do we do that? And if we modulate to a different note, what, what Raga does that all of a sudden bring to us and then how can we try to express that? Or maybe there's something else that we discover when we use a new root note that's like, oh, well, this raga now would actually sound really cool. And then that becomes like a real blending of tradition. So I have two questions before we get to the sort of the big Q&A, and then I'll play a little more of the, 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 the video. Um, the two questions, and you guys can choose who answers them. When I think about the sort of the Western, the Western uh, classical tradition, there are clearly these eras, you know, that historians have sort of defined. You know, there's the Baroque period and Romantic and uh, classical, and um, and for some reason, when I think of uh, at least like Arabic music, I forget that this is a living genre and that there are probably similar similarly those same eras, right? Um, someone's phone. Um, uh, Sim, uh, similarly, the, there must be those eras. So I'm curious if that's true, sort of, um, are you guys tapping into specific eras? Um, the second question is, have traditionalists sort of responded to the the, um, the Raga Makam uh, project with, you know, antipathy? Have there Has there been any pushback saying you guys are corrupting a specific form? Um, or, you know, has it been celebrated as, as sort of a, a, a fun uh, exploration. Well, I, I'm sure the the era thing is is we we could probably time about it, but I think that you know in, in Western classical music you have like in the last 
500 years or so, you know, let's say from the Renaissance to the Baroque to the classical to romantic to... to, to I'm sorry. Wow. Uh, to the t 20th century contemporary, you know, there's this sort of, that all ex exist, each is about, a, I don't know, a century or a little mm -hmm. bit less. And I think in, in, in like, <clears throat> maqam, partly because it's not written, so we don't exactly know what people were playing in, in the year 1700 or in, you know, it's, it's not having a, 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 as much of a written record and it being a more of an oral tradition. We're kind of constantly in the present in the sense that, it's like the present moment has the whole history of the last 3,000 years and you're kind of connecting to different parts of it. And that's liberating in a way because you're not so stuck. I mean, this is the way I feel about it. Maybe somebody else would, would have a different answer. But you're not stuck in, I mean, yes, there's a tradition, but you can recall a generation before or a generation before, like if you have knowledge of, of what was being done, at least today now through audio recordings, we can at least... You know, we can go back to the late 19th century and early 20th century. Um, but but it's it's always like what's happening now, what's what's happening in the moment. And yes, there are eras in the sense that like, you know, there was this period when, when Baghdad was the the center of the this large Islamic empire that was roughly about 500 years from the 8th to the 13th centuries. And we kind of consider that to be a golden age of Islamic history, but in particular, as far as what we know about the music, um, and at the same period, there was something happening in El Andalus, which is um, southern Spain, Cordoba, Sevilla, uh, Cordoba, Seville, and, and Granada, and this region, which then had moved to North Africa when the expulsion of the, the Muslims happened in the um, 15th, 15th, 16th centuries. Um, so there's these eras that we talk about, and we have some reference. There's a lot of his treatises that we know. But we don't really know what they were playing enough to that we could like say, okay, now we're going to play a 13th century or, you know. So in that sense, we have these grand periods of like, you know, a, a half a millennium, you know. And then Iraq, we know something about Sumerian and Babylonian modes and we have some written. But no one's, there's not like a, a group of period. Well, there are, but they're not very accurate, I don't think. Um, period instruments, you know, kind of making the, the what Hammurabi's, choir was singing in the in the rituals of Babylon in 600 BC. I, we don't have uh, that information. So um, there's something kind of liberating about an oral tradition in the sense that you're you're kind of in the present all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's that's great. Um, Arun, you I'm want to sure, take a, yeah. a swipe at the, at the second question? Yeah. Oh, about um, how it may be perceived. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like, what has been the reception from both people who are new to both art forms and people yeah. who are traditionalists? You know, the, um, it's been actually quite, quite positive uh, across the board, I would say, which is not always the case <laughs> with um, any sort of collaboration or experimentation outside of pure traditional music. And um, in the, the traditionalists in Carnatic music tend to really like the music to be what it is and mm -hmm. while the music like you know amir is saying in in an oral tradition and um in an improvisational tradition often you know there's an evolution of the way the music grows over time through the artists that are performing it and uh, that's no different in carnatic music but it has stayed kind of close to a certain center and um, but i think with this project because it's also honoring 
traditional music. It's it's taking um, ragas and composition and these elements and and really making them a center point and something that um, we want to put out there. Uh, and we're yes, we're blending them, but I think makam is also such a close cousin that um, the appreciation for uh, the music is very much there, and that that same sentiment, that same resonance that I think we feel in uh, Indian classical music, I think we feel in makam. So I know for me, the first time I heard it, I was like, "Wow, I want more of this." And I think that's what happens um, with anybody else that's coming from this um, Indian classical community. So it's been received very well. So cool. Okay, so we're going to go through this quick Q and A. I'm going to try to keep you guys to one sentence each. Since um, we are, uh, I just realized it's 45 minutes into the hour. So um, Arun, uh, what are you reading or watching right now? Um, right now I'm reading this book called The Karma of Brown Folk by uh, Vijay Prashad. And it, it's kind of tackling this notion of the model minority um, and just South Asians and how, you know, when South Asians came to this country in the 60s, it was, you know, it was only for immigrants that had degrees that were engineers that were doctors that were going to come. So there was like kind of like the the cream of the crop, if you will, came. Sure. And it sort of set this precedent for what maybe South Asians started to feel as immigrants in this country. And they became called the model minority. And um, yeah. it, it goes into that discussion and how it affected race relations and how, you know, with with African-Americans and and other immigrants, how there's a kind of disconnect and why. Cool. That's great. Amir, are you still there? Yeah. Yeah, I'm here. Uh, what are you reading or watching right now? Well, I've uh, been doing a deep dive into modular synthesizers, which is a very, very different world. Um, <laughs> so we're, we're talking about like thousands of year old tradition. And now I'm, I'm, although I've spent most of my life dealing with only acoustic music, um, I'm I'm getting very interested in the, in the technology of um, of really the 1960s and 70s, which created these enormous. Um, maybe I can since I've been showing you my instruments, I'll show you this one. It's a bit crazy right now, but you can let's see if, if this is gonna work. I know that was a bad idea. How can you hear me now? Yeah, now I got you. Yeah, I'm, I'm back yeah. on com computer audio. I'll, I'll figure out what I just did. <laughs> I was like trying to move <laughs> things around with wires and cables, but it's basically this large. Um, electronic instrument with knobs and dials and, and yeah. switches and and you're basically able to sculpt what sound you want because it's yeah. it's coming from an electronic source but you don't have the limitations of presets like it doesn't say it has to sound like this or that so I'm like, integrating that into my into my performance now cool and we you can look like a anyone who's anytime I see like a, somebody using modular 60s uh, uh, instruments. I always feel like they're a Bond villain who's like adjusting <laughs> the dials for the like <laughs> the laser that goes oh. into the. <laughs> well, you know, I've been going to a chiropractor lately who uses these like a uh, little, I don't know what they're called, diodes or something. They put yeah, them on your back and it's, yeah. yeah. Well, no, no, no. This thing that they put on your back and it just creates vibration, which causes your muscles to contract and release, which is a way of, you know, it's, but it's like 60s technology. And I'm, I'm looking at this thing like, man, maybe I can wire this up with my synth and figure out some, you know, like it's, it's kind of the same. Yeah. Very similar technology and probably inspired all the James Bond movies. And For so. sure. But I won't, I won't be a villain of, uh, 
of traditional music with it. I'm, I'm up to something else. So. Okay, let's. Um, mm. Okay, let's try to keep it. I'm going to try to keep this a sentence. Okay, so, who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present? Um, Arun, what do you? Who? Who do you got? Um, my 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 grandfather that I never met, that okay. owned a bookshop in Bangalore, and is awesome. Okay, cool. Amir, how about you? It's a very difficult question, but I'm going to go with my grandfather because Arun said his grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> how about um, I shadow your grandfather? You can shadow mine. Two for the price of one. Um, yeah, my grandfather was a coppersmith in, in Baghdad. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an era that I've, I've read and thought and seen pictures of and wish I could be there and sort of understand that life. So. So I guess there's a question that both of you can answer. What do people most misunderstand about uh, Brooklyn Macomb? Mm, that, that's a tough one also. Um, you know, interestingly enough, before I started playing with Amir and started diving into Macomb, people used to always ask me, um, so how do you play those microtones and quartertones? Yeah. And I'd be like, well, I'm not actually really playing microtones. <laughs> Um, so there's kind of a bit of a misunderstanding about what raga is and maybe about what um, what I'm trying to do with it or like what my unique voice is. Because a lot of times it's like not necessarily traditional. I think with traditional audiences, the misunderstanding is what I'm trying to do with my ex you know experimental stuff and then vice versa. People are trying to understand what you know, classical music is and maybe there's a um, bit of a learning curve for that. So cool. Amir, mm, um, do you mind if I, I I jump you to the next one? Uh, what is it? No, I want to answer this one actually because this okay, is actually one. an important thing, and and this is where we. This is a very subtle point, and I'm just going to try to say it briefly, and it's another conversation. But there's a notion about combining cultures and combining peoples from different parts of the world and like building bridges and like, you know, these far off, you know, the world of jazz and Makam or the world of rock, like they're so di different. And now we're gonna like make a connection and like they're, they're these strangers that are gonna meet and, and then make some. And in the actual practice and experience of it, it's it's very different. We're, we're, we're human beings that come together and make music, whether it's in Raga Maqam, whether it's my 17 piece Rivers of Sound, where, you know, you have people from, that would immediately be identified as being from this part of the globe and therefore X, Y, Z, there's all these assumptions about what that person's mentality is, what their music is, how, and in the, in the practice, it's really whether we're from the same village or whether we're from supposedly different, you know, very different societies. Um, there's a core of humanity that I'm always after and trying to, you know, bring forth. And that human humanity is is more than the than the differences in terms of like what are we trying to mitigate? It's a very subtle and, and difficult and longer conversation, but I just wanted to put it in there as a as as your pointed question has has led me to it. But no, yeah, I think I mean I think it's really well said. I'm glad that you said that. Um, so uh, whose work do you admire or are inspired by? I'm sure the list is long, but if somebody comes to mind, who would it be? Amir? Uh, well, there's there's so many, but I, I would just say one of my mentors, uh, Cecil Taylor, who is always kind of in the background, whatever I'm doing in any genre. Yeah. Yeah. 
And for me, there's also a, a huge list of people. Um, from uh, you know, I'd say like El Shankar, who was a um, amazing violinist, was part of Shakti back in the day. He was somebody that opened my eyes, and and so many people that I work with now, I'm mean, here included, uh, very much so, um, of people that have been inspiring. Mm. You too, so cool. Well, um, great. So we're going to open up to questions in the chat. I think the first one comes from Ralph, who I need to have unmute. Um, Ralph, are you there? Oh, I was just trying to, I did quite catch the name of the Egyptian trumpet player that you... Yeah, his name is Sami El-Babli oh, um, in the chat, so you can Google him. There are some yeah. nice videos. Yeah, I found him on Google, but I wasn't sure. And do you use oh, a fourth? Okay. Do you use a fourth vowel? No, three vowels, but I use the slides, the first and third vowel slide. Great, thanks. I better mute because I have a little background noise. Bye bye. <laughs> Thank you for your question. Yeah, Amir, actually, I'm curious. So I actually grew up playing trumpet as well. So I'm I'm really oh. curious about. Um, is it exclusively through the valves? Well, I mean, it's guided through the through my ear, but yes. The, the valve, and then some, somewhat with the lips. Um, Samuel Babli, who I, I just put his name in, actually maybe S-A-M-Y, there's different ways of spelling. Um, he did it with his lips, like strictly with his embouchure. And, um, but he was also playing a different kind of a rotary trumpet, which has a little more leeway for bending yeah. notes. Um, but yeah, I don't use a fourth piston. I've, I've, I didn't really think about a fourth piston when I started, so. Cool. Um, our next question comes from Mira. Mira, are you there? Hey guys, can you hear me? Yep, hear you perfectly. Um, thank you for this. This has been so awesome. Um, one of my questions is if Arun, you could talk a little bit about the uh, influence from nature and time cycles in Raga and Amir, if there's any other connection to nature, the natural world that is part of the calm vocal content, like lyrical content or structural content. Yeah, um, well, in, you know, they say that ragas are, you know, as natural to the world as anything, just like sound and that they're discovered. They're not created, but just discovered that they always existed. Mm -hmm. And um, so there are ragas that are associated with different times of day. Like the ragas that are performed in the morning as the sun rises, in the middle of the day, in the afternoon, in the evening, midnight, um, and so on. Um, there are ragas that are associated with seasons. So during the rainy season, there are certain ragas that are performed. Um, and these are supposed to elicit these feelings and um, sort of accompany this time of day. And, um, you know, if you listen to morning ragas as the sun rises, you do feel a certain connection to the world around you. And um, this is intentional. It was maybe thought of this way. Um, and I think that classification of this happened after these ragas existed. Maybe there was a connection and a tie to times of day um, based on how they felt for people. Um, I think that's something that we don't know exactly, you know, which came first. Um, well, I guess the sunrise came first. But, you know. <laughs> Um, but yes, they are. This is especially true for North Indian classical music, Hindustani music, with uh, the raga same, which is what it's called, which is the system of um, ragas being associated with times of day. But the seasonal ragas, like uh, rainy season, um, that exists very much in Carnatic music as well. Um, 
so yeah, there's very much a connection. And I guess the next question was about Makam and if there's any connection to nature. Yeah, it's it's a little bit less explicit when it comes to Maqam. So um, there are treatises from the 10th and 11th centuries where there are people saying that this Maqam is for this season and, and time of day, similar to what Arun was describing with Raga. But in practice, I haven't seen anything uh, quite like that in a Maqam tradition. And I think it's partly because we don't spend an hour or two in one Maqam. There's a lot of variation and changes. Um, but I remember reading like Maqam Rast, the one that I was showing you was supposed to be a sunrise Maqam and, and I, I could feel it, especially the structure of the melody, the way that it rises slowly, there's there's a sense of emergence. So, um, but it's it's more sub, you know, subjective, uh, we can say. And, and, but in terms of poetry and in terms of how it's, you know, the choice of words, there's another art, which is how you choose your poem to go with the maqam. So even though maqams, I didn't really go into the Iraqi definition where it's more like a composition, but we'll just suffice it to say they're compositions um, that can be used with any poem. So the singer has to have a sensitivity of the way the melody, what it feels, what it evokes emotionally, and then kind of marry the words to the melody in such a way that it, 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 brings out the text. Um, and this is also an art that's used in, in Quranic recitation, where you really want to connect the right word with the right melodic gesture or mode. Great. Thanks so much. Okay, so I think we have time for one more question, maybe to uh, Alexandra. Do you want to ask your question? I see a question from Alexandra. Yeah. Um, uh, you want to unmute? I see your face. There you go. I got you. Oh, okay. Hello? Yes, hey, we hear you. Working? Yep. Okay, great. Um, so I wanted to ask you um, if you've come across the experience of being categorized as world music and um, if that happens, basically if the attitude towards your music and your work uh, is different in different parts of the world. Uh, and also if the understanding of what you're trying to achieve is different in different places you play. You just briefly mentioned about the um, how it's perceived in traditional music of, for instance, parts of India. Uh, so I wonder, uh, what is your experience in that sense? Mm -hmm. you can well, the short, short answer is yes. I mean, uh, because anything that's not like Western European or, or American or you know, from this particular culture is is automatically put in this category of world. So it should actually be and and the world uh, because it's it's you know there's even European traditions that are called world music because they exist in 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 more situation to hard sort of cut off. So it's it's a very funny term. We sort of sometimes don't have a choice because there's an industry that that pigeonholes things and and but I'm very I, I think I think we're done with that term um, and then in the next few years you'll be seeing more like here's Carnatic music here's Icelandic music here's music from the Congo here's you know very specific to the place without having to have this umbrella that's just basically not even a category I mean it's like this is music from the world okay <laughs> what is it? Like music from the world. Saturn. Okay, it's not. Here's food from the world. Oh, what is it? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's worthwhile with Sun Ra to say he was from from Saturn. So then this is the first thing we can say. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much, Alexandra. Thanks for that question. Um, Tirpat, I don't think we have time to get to your comment, but um, thank you to everyone for joining. Um, Arun, Amir, this was super, super fun. I'm so happy that we got to hear you playing and singing. And um, I think that uh, you have just um, signed up for another one of these at some point in the next year where we can play a little more of your music and explore many of the topics that I feel like we didn't even have enough time to get into. So this was super, super fun. Um, everyone on the call, we have uh, events next week. So please go to africa.com, sign up. If you're interested in learning more about Brooklyn Raga, it's very easy to find uh, information online. Just search uh, Brooklyn Raga or uh, Raga Makam, um, excuse me. Uh, you'll find a lot of the information online. I also want to thank uh, Mira, who's on the chat as well, who helped make all of this happen. Uh, so huge shout out to Mira um, for helping organize this and connecting us with Arun and Amira. Thanks, guys. This was really fun. Thank you, Mikey. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you, Thanks Mike. for hosting this. Bye, everyone. Thanks bye, so much. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We have new episodes coming every single week. Make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find us at afikra.com for information about all upcoming events. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. See you next time and stay curious.